Chapter Five of Pierre and Jean by Guy de Maupassant, translated by Clara Bell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. But the doctor's frame lay scarcely more than an hour or two in the torpor of troubled slumbers, when he awoke in the darkness of his warm, closed room, even before thought was awake in him, of the painful oppression, the sickness of heart which the sorrow we have slept on leaves behind it. It is as though the disaster of which the shock merely jarred us at first had, during sleep, stolen into our very flesh, bruising and exhausting it like a fever. Memory returned to him like a blow, and he sat up in bed. Then slowly, one by one, he again went through all the arguments which had wrung his heart on the jetty while the foghorns were bellowing. The more he thought, the less he doubted. He felt himself dragged along by his logic to the inevitable certainty as by a clutching, strangling hand. He was thirsty and hot, his heart beat wildly. He got up to open his window and breathe the fresh air, and as he stood there a low sound fell on his ear through the wall. Jean was sleeping peacefully and gently snoring. He could sleep. He had no presentiment, no suspicions. A man who had known their mother had left him all his fortune. He took the money and thought it quite fair and natural. He was sleeping, rich and contented, not knowing that his brother was gasping with anguish and distress, and rage boiled up in him against this heedless and happy sleeper. Only yesterday he would have knocked at his door, have gone in, and sitting by the bed would have said to Jean, scared by the sudden wakening, Jean, you must not keep this legacy, which by to-morrow may have brought suspicion and dishonour on our mother. But to-day he could say nothing. He could not tell Jean that he did not believe him to be their father's son. Now he must guard, must bury the shame he had discovered, hide from every eye the stain which he had detected, and which no one must perceive, not even his brother, especially not his brother. He no longer thought about the vain respect of public opinion. He would have been glad that all the world should accuse his mother if only he, he alone, knew her to be innocent. How could he bear to live with her every day, believing as he looked at her that his brother was the child of a stranger's love? And how calm and serene she was, nevertheless, how sure of herself she always seemed! Was it possible that such a woman as she, pure of soul and upright in heart, should fall, dragged astray by passion, and yet nothing ever appear afterward of her remorse and the stings of a troubled conscience? Ah, but remorse must have tortured her, long ago in the earlier days, and then have faded out, as everything fades. She had surely bewailed her sin, and then, little by little, had almost forgotten it. Have not all women, all, this fault of prodigious forgetfulness, which enables them, after a few years, hardly to recognize the man to whose kisses they have given their lips? The kiss strikes like a thunderbolt, the love passes away like a storm, and then life, like the sky, is calm once more, and begins again as it was before. Do we ever remember a cloud? Pierre could no longer endure to stay in the room. This house, his father's house, crushed him. He felt the roof weigh on his head, and the walls suffocate him. 
and as he was very thirsty he lighted his candle to go to drink a glass of fresh water from the filter in the kitchen. He went down the two flights of stairs, then, as he was coming up again with the water-bottle filled, he sat down, in his nightshirt, on a step of the stairs where there was a draught, and drank, without a tumbler, in long pulls like a runner who is out of breath. When he ceased to move, the silence of the house touched his feelings. Then, one by one, he could distinguish the faintest sounds. First there was the ticking of the clock in the dining-room, which seemed to grow louder every second. Then he heard another snore, an old man's snore, short, laboured, and hard, his father beyond doubt, and he writhed at the idea, as if it had been but this moment sprung upon him, that these two men, sleeping under the same roof, father and son, were nothing to each other. Not a tie, not the very slightest, bound them together, and they did not know it. They spoke to each other affectionately, they embraced each other, they rejoiced and lamented together over the same things, just as if the same blood flowed in their veins. And two men born at opposite ends of the earth could not be more alien to each other than this father and son. They believed they loved each other, because a lie had grown up between them. This paternal love, this filial love, were the outcome of a lie, a lie which could not be unmasked, and which no one would ever know but he, the true son. But yet, but yet, if he were mistaken? How could he make sure? Oh, if only some likeness, however slight, could be traced between his father and Jean, one of those mysterious resemblances which run from an ancestor to the great-great-grandson, showing that the whole race are the offspring of the same embrace. To him, a medical man, so little would suffice to enable him to discern this, the curve of a nostril, the space between the eyes, the character of the teeth or hair. Nay, less, a gesture, a trick, a habit, an inherited taste, any mark or token which a practised eye might recognise as characteristic. He thought long, but could remember nothing, no, nothing. But he had looked carelessly, observed badly, having no reason for spying such imperceptible indications. He got up to go back to his room and mounted the stairs with a slow step, still lost in thought. As he passed the door of his brother's room, he stood stock still, his hand put out to open it. An imperative need had just come over him to see Jean at once, to look at him at his leisure, to surprise him in his sleep, while the calm countenance and relaxed features were at rest and all the grimace of life put off. Thus he must catch the dormant secret of his physiognomy, and if any appreciable likeness existed, it would not escape him. But supposing Jean were to wake, what could he say? How could he explain this intrusion? He stood still, his fingers clenched on the door-handle, trying to devise a reason, an excuse. Then he remembered that a week ago he had lent his brother a file of laudanum to relieve a fit of toothache. He might himself have been in pain this night and have come to find the drug. So he went in in a stealthy step, like a robber. Jean, his mouth open, was sunk in deep animal slumbers. His beard and fair hair made a golden patch on the white linen. He did not wake, but he ceased snoring. Pierre, leaning over him, gazed at him with hungry eagerness. 
No, this youngster was not in the least like Roland, and for the second time the recollection of this little portrait of Maréchal, which had vanished, recurred to his mind. He must find it. When he should see it, perhaps he should cease to doubt. His brother stirred, conscious no doubt of a presence, or disturbed by the light of the taper on his eyelids. The doctor retired on tiptoe to the door, which he noiselessly closed. Then he went back to his room, but not to bed again. Day was long in coming. The hours struck one after another on the dining-room clock, and its tone was a deep and solemn one, as though the little piece of clockwork had swallowed a cathedral bell. The sound rose through the empty staircase, penetrating through walls and doors, and dying away in the rooms where it fell on the torpid ears of the sleeping household. Pierre had taken to walking to and fro between his bed and the window. What was he going to do? He was too much upset to spend this day at home. He wanted still to be alone, at any rate till the next day, to reflect, to compose himself, to strengthen himself for the common everyday life which he must take up again. Well, he would go over to Trouville, to see the swarming crowd on the sands. That would amuse him, change the air of his thoughts, and give him time to inure himself to the horrible thing he had discovered. As soon as morning dawned, he made his toilet and dressed. The fog had vanished, and it was fine, very fine. As the boat for Trouville did not start till nine, it struck the doctor that he must greet his mother before starting. He waited till the hour at which she was accustomed to get up, and then went downstairs. His heart beat so violently as he touched her door that he paused for breath. His hand as it lay on the lock was limp and tremulous, almost incapable of the slight effort of turning the handle to open it. He knocked. His mother's voice inquired, Who is there? I, Pierre. What do you want? Only to say good morning, because I am going to spend the day at Trouville with some friends. But I am still in bed. Very well. Do not disturb yourself. I shall see you this evening when I come in. He hoped to get off without seeing her, without pressing on her cheek the false kiss which it made his heart sick to think of. But she replied, No, wait a moment, I will let you in. Wait till I get into bed again. He heard her bare feet on the floor, and the sound of the bolt drawn back. Then she called out, Come in. He went in. She was sitting up in bed, while, by her side, Roland, with a silk handkerchief by way of nightcap, and his face to the wall, still lay sleeping. Nothing ever woke him, but a shaking hard enough to pull his arm off. On the days when he went fishing, it was Josephine, rung up by Papagris, at the hour fixed, who roused her master from his stubborn slumbers. Pierre, as he went towards his mother, looked at her with a sudden sense of never having seen her before. She held up her face, he kissed her cheek, and then sat down in a low chair. "'It was last evening that you decided on this excursion?' she asked. "'Yes, last evening. Will you return to dinner?' "'I do not know. At any rate, do not wait for me.' He looked at her with stupefied curiosity. This woman was his mother. All those features, seen daily from childhood, from the time when his eye could first distinguish things, that smile, that voice, so well known, so familiar, 
abruptly struck him as new, different from what they had always been to him hitherto. He understood now that, loving her, he had never looked at her. All the same, it was really she, and he knew every little detail of her face. Still, it was the first time he clearly identified them all. His anxious attention, scrutinizing her face which he loved, recalled a difference, a physiognomy he had never before discerned. He rose to go, then suddenly, yielding to the invincible longing to know which had been gnawing at him since yesterday, he said, "'By the way, I fancy I remember that you used to have, in Paris, a little portrait of Maréchal in the drawing-room. She hesitated for a second or two, or at least he fancied she hesitated. Then she said, "'To be sure.' "'What has become of the portrait?' She might have replied more readily, "'That portrait? I don't exactly know. Perhaps it is in my desk.' "'It would be kind of you to find it.' "'Yes, I will look for it. What do you want it for?' "'Oh, it is not for myself. I thought it would be a natural thing to give it to Jean, and that he would be pleased to have it. Yes, you are right. That is a good idea. I will look for it as soon as I am up. And he went out. It was a blue day without a breath of wind. The folks in the street seemed in good spirits, the merchants going to business, the clerks going to their office, the girls going to their shop. Some sang as they went, exhilarated by the bright weather. The passengers were already going on board the Tourville boat. Pierre took a seat aft on a wooden bench. He asked himself, Now was she uneasy at my asking for the portrait, or only surprised? Has she mislaid it, or has she hidden it? Does she know where it is, or does she not? If she had hidden it, why? And his mind, still following up the same line of thought from one deduction to another, came to this conclusion. That portrait, of a friend, of a lover, had remained in the drawing-room in a conspicuous place till one day when the wife and mother perceived, first of all and before anyone else, that it bore a likeness to her son. Without doubt she had for a long time been on the watch for this resemblance. Then, having detected it, having noticed its beginnings, and understanding that anyone might, any day, observe it too, she had one evening removed the perilous little picture, and had hidden it, not daring to destroy it. Pierre recollected quite clearly now that it was long, long before they left Paris that the miniature had vanished. It had disappeared, he thought, about the time that Jean's beard was beginning to grow, which had made him suddenly and wonderfully like the fair young man who smiled from the picture frame. The motion of the boat, as it put off, disturbed and dissipated his meditations. He stood up and looked at the sea. The little steamer, once outside the piers, turned to the left, and puffing and snorting and quivering, made for a distant point visible through the morning haze. The red sail of a heavy fishing bark, lying motionless on the level waters, looked like a large rock standing up out of the sea and the Seine, rolling down from Rouen, seemed a wide inlet dividing two neighbouring lands. They reached the harbour of Trouville in less than an hour, and as it was the time of day when the world was bathing, Pierre went to the shore. From a distance it looked like a garden full of gaudy flowers. All along the stretch of yellow sand, from the pier as far as the Roche Noire, 
Sunshades of every hue, hats of every shape, dresses of every color, in groups outside the bathing huts, in long rows by the margin of the waves, or scattered here and there, really looked like immense bouquets on a vast meadow. And the babble of sounds, voices near and far ringing thin in the light atmosphere, shouts and cries of children being bathed, clear laughter of women, all made a pleasant continuous din, mingling with the unheeding breeze, and breathed with the air itself. Pierre walked among all this throng, more lost, more remote from them, more isolated, more drowned in his torturing thoughts than if he had been flung overboard from the deck of a ship a hundred miles from shore. He passed by them and heard a few sentences without listening, and he saw, without looking, how the men spoke to the women, and the women smiled at the men. Then, suddenly, as if he had awoke, he perceived them all and hatred of them all surged up in his soul, for they seemed happy and content. Now, as he went, he studied the groups, wandering round them full of a fresh set of ideas. All these many-hued dresses, which covered the sands like nosegays, were pretty stuffs, those showy parasols, the fictitious grace of tightened waists, all the ingenious devices of fashion, from the smart little shoe to the extravagant hat, the seductive charm of gesture, voice and smile, all the coquettish airs in short displayed on this seashore, suddenly struck him as stupendous efflorescences of female depravity. All these bedizened women aimed at pleasing, bewitching, and deluding some man. They had dressed themselves out for men, for all men, all excepting the husband whom they no longer needed to conquer. They had dressed themselves out for the lover of yesterday and the lover of to-morrow, for the stranger they might meet and notice or were perhaps on the lookout for. And these men, sitting close to them, eye to eye and mouth to mouth, invited them, desired them, hunted them like game, coy and elusive notwithstanding that it seemed so near and so easy to capture. This wide shore was, then, no more than a love-market, where some sold, others gave themselves, some drove a hard bargain for their kisses, while others promised them for love. All these women thought only of one thing, to make their bodies desirable, bodies already given, sold, or promised to other men. And he reflected that it was everywhere the same, all the world over. His mother had done what others did, that was all others? These women he saw about him, rich, giddy, love-seeking, belonged on the whole to the class of fashionable and showy women of the world, some indeed to the less respectable sisterhood, for on these sands, trampled by the legion of idlers, the tribe of virtuous, home-keeping women were not to be seen. The tide was rising, driving the foremost rank of visitors gradually landward. He saw the various groups jump up and fly, carrying their chairs with them, before the yellow waves as they rolled up, edged with a lace-like frill of foam. The bathing machines, too, were being pulled up by horses, and along the planked way, which formed the promenade running along the shore from end to end, there was now an increasing flow, slow and dense, of well-dressed people in two opposite streams, elbowing and mingling. Pierre, made nervous and exasperated by this bustle, made his escape into the town, and went to get his breakfast at a modest tavern on the skirts of the fields. 
When he had finished with coffee, he stretched his legs on a couple of chairs under a lime tree in front of the house, and as he had hardly slept the night before, he presently fell into a doze. After resting for some hours, he shook himself, and finding that it was time to go on board again, he set out, tormented by a sudden stiffness which had come upon him during his long nap. Now he was eager to be at home again, to know whether his mother had found the portrait of Maréchal. Would she be the first to speak of it, or would he be obliged to ask for it again? If she waited to be questioned further, it must be because she had some secret reason for not showing the miniature. But when he was at home again, and in his room, he hesitated about going down to dinner. He was too wretched. His revolted soul had not yet time to calm down. However, he made up his mind to it, and appeared in the dining-room just as they were sitting down. All their faces were beaming. "'Well,' said Roland, "'are you getting on with your purchases? I do not want to see anything till it is all in its place.' And his wife replied, "'Oh, yes, we are getting on, but it takes much consideration to avoid buying things that do not match. The furniture question is an absorbing one.' She had spent the day in going with Jean to cabinet-makers and upholsterers. Her fancy was for rich materials, rather splendid to strike the eye at once. Her son, on the contrary, wished for something simple and elegant. So in front of everything put before them, they had each repeated their arguments. She declared that a client, a defendant, must be impressed, that as soon as he is shown into his counsel's waiting-room, he should have a sense of wealth. Jean, on the other hand, wishing to attract only an elegant and opulent class, was anxious to captivate persons of refinement by his quiet and perfect taste. And this discussion, which had gone on all day, began again with the soup. Roland had no opinion. He repeated, I do not want to hear anything about it. I will go and see it when it is all finished. Madame Roland appealed to the judgment of her elder son. And you, Pierre, what do you think of the matter? His nerves were in a state of such intense excitement that he would have liked to reply with an oath. However, he only answered in a dry tone, quivering with annoyance. Oh, I am quite of Jean's mind. I like nothing so well as simplicity, which, in matters of taste, is equivalent to rectitude in matters of conduct. His mother went on. You must remember that we live in a city of commercial men, where good taste is not to be met with at every turn. Pierre replied, What does that matter? Is that a reason for living as fools do? If my fellow townsmen are stupid and ill-bred, need I follow their example? A woman does not misconduct herself because a neighbor has a lover. Jean began to laugh. You argue by comparisons which seem to have been borrowed from the maxims of a moralist. Pierre made no reply. His mother and his brother reverted to the question of stuffs and armchairs. He sat looking at them, as he had looked at his mother in the morning before starting for Trouville, looked at them as a stranger who would study them, and he felt as though he had really suddenly come into a family of which he knew nothing. His father, above all, amazed his eyes and his mind. That flabby, burly man, happy and besotted, was his own father. No, no, Jean was not in the least like him. His family. 
Within these two days an unknown and malignant hand, the hand of a dead man, had torn asunder and broken, one by one, all the ties which had held these four human beings together. It was all over, all ruined. He had now no mother, for he could no longer love her now that he could not revere her with that perfect, tender, and pious respect which a son's love demands. No brother, since his brother was the child of a stranger. Nothing was left him but his father, that coarse man whom he could not love in spite of himself. And he suddenly broke out. I say, mother, have you found that portrait? She opened her eyes in surprise. What portrait? The portrait of Maréchal. No, that is to say, yes, I have not found it, but I think I know where it is. What is that? asked Roland. And Pierre answered. A little likeness of Maréchal which used to be in the dining-room in Paris. I thought that Jean might be glad to have it. Roland exclaimed. Why, yes, to be sure. I remember it perfectly. I saw it again last week. Your mother found it in her desk when she was tidying the papers. It was on Thursday or Friday. Do you remember, Louise? I was shaving myself when you took it out and laid it on a chair by your side with a pile of letters of which you burned half. Strange, isn't it, that you should have come across the portrait only two or three days before Jean heard of his legacy? If I believed in presentiments, I should think that this was one. Madame Roland calmly replied, Yes, I know where it is. I will fetch it presently. Then she had lied. When she had said that very morning to her son, who had asked her what had become of the miniature, I don't exactly know, perhaps it is in my desk, it was a lie. She had seen it, touched it, handled it, gazed at it, but a few days since, and then she had hidden it away again, in the secret drawer with those letters, his letters. Pierre looked at the mother who had lied to him, looked at her with the concentrated fury of a son who had been cheated, robbed of his most sacred affection, and with the jealous wrath of a man who, after long being blind, at last discovers a disgraceful betrayal. If he had been that woman's husband, and not her child, he would have gripped her by the wrists, seized her by the shoulders or the hair, have flung her on the ground, have hit her, hurt her, crushed her and he might say nothing, do nothing, show nothing, reveal nothing. He was her son, he had no vengeance to take, and he had not been deceived. Nay, but she had deceived his tenderness, his pious respect. She owed to him to be without reproach, as all mothers owe it to their children. If the fury that boiled within him verged on hatred, it was that he felt her to be even more guilty towards him than toward his father. The love of man and wife is a voluntary compact in which the one who proves weak is guilty only of perfidy. But when the wife is a mother, her duty is a higher one, since nature has entrusted her with a race. If she fails, then she is cowardly, worthless, infamous. I do not care, said Roland suddenly, stretching out his legs under the table, as he did every evening while he sipped his glass of black currant brandy. You may do worse than live idle when you have a snug little income. I hope Jean will have us to dinner in style now. Hang it all! If I have indigestion now and then, I cannot help it. 
Then turning to his wife, he added, "'Go and fetch that portrait, little woman, as you have done your dinner. I should like to see it again myself.' She rose, took a taper, and went. Then, after an absence which Pierre thought long, though she was not away more than three minutes, Madame Roland returned smiling, and holding an old-fashioned gilt frame by the ring. "'Here it is,' she said. "'I found it at once.' The doctor was the first to put forth his hand. He took the picture, and holding it a little away from him, he examined it. Then, fully aware that his mother was looking at him, he slowly raised his eyes and fixed them on his brother to compare the faces. He could hardly refrain, in his violence, from saying, "'Dear me, how like Jean!' And though he dared not utter the terrible words, he betrayed his thought by his manner of comparing the living face with the painted one. They had, no doubt, details in common, the same beard, the same brow, but nothing sufficiently marked to justify the assertion, this is the father and that the son. It was rather a family likeness, a relationship of physiognomies in which the same blood courses. But what to Pierre was far more decisive than the common aspect of the faces, was that his mother had risen, had turned her back, and was pretending, too deliberately, to be putting the sugar-basin and the liqueur-bottle away in a cupboard. She understood that he knew, or at any rate had his suspicions. "'Hand it to me,' said Roland. Pierre held out the miniature, and his father drew the candle towards him to see it better. Then he murmured in a pathetic tone, "'Poor fellow!' to think that he was like that when we first knew him. Christy, how time flies! He was a good-looking man, too, in those days, and with such a pleasant manner. Was he not, Louise? As his wife made no answer, he went on. And what an even temper! I never saw him put out. And now it is all at an end. Nothing left of him but what he bequeathed to Jean. Well, at any rate, you may take your oath that that man was a good and faithful friend to the last. Even on his deathbed he did not forget us. Jean, in his turn, held out his hand for the picture. He gazed at it for a few minutes, and then said regretfully, I do not recognize it at all. I only remember him with white hair. He returned the miniature to his mother. She cast a hasty glance at it, looking away as if she were frightened. Then, in her usual voice, she said, "'It belongs to you now, my little Jean, as you are his heir. We will take it to your new rooms.' And when they went into the drawing-room, she placed the picture on the chimney-shelf by the clock, where it had formerly stood. Roland filled his pipe. Pierre and Jean lighted cigarettes. They commonly smoked them, Pierre while he paced the room, Jean sunk in a deep armchair, with his legs crossed. Their father always sat astride a chair, and spat from afar into the fireplace. Madame Roland, on a low seat by a little table on which the lamp stood, embroidered or knitted or marked linen. This evening she was beginning a piece of worsted work, intended for Jean's lodgings. It was a difficult and complicated pattern, and required all her attention. Still, now and again, her eye, which was counting the stitches, glanced up swiftly and furtively at the little portrait of the dead as it leaned against the clock. And the doctor, who was striding to and fro across the room in four or five steps, 
met his mother's look at each turn. It was as though they were spying on each other, and acute uneasiness, intolerable to be borne, clutched at Pierre's heart. He was saying to himself, at once tortured and glad, she must be in misery at this moment if she knows that I guess. And each time he reached the fireplace, he stopped for a few seconds to look at Maréchal's fair hair, and show quite plainly that he was haunted by a fixed idea, so that this little portrait, smaller than an opened palm, was like a living being, malignant and threatening, suddenly brought into this house and this family. Presently the street doorbell rang. Madame Roland, always so self-possessed, started violently, betraying to her doctor-son the anguish of her nerves. Then she said, "'It must be Madame Rosemilly,' and her eye again anxiously turned to the mantel-shelf. Pierre understood, or thought he understood, her fears and misery. A woman's eye is keen, a woman's wit is nimble, and her instincts suspicious. When this woman who was coming in should see the miniature of a man she did not know, she might perhaps at the first glance discover the likeness between this face and Jean. Then she would know and understand everything. He was seized with dread, a sudden and horrible dread of this shame being unveiled, and turning about just as the door opened, he took the little painting and slipped it under the clock without being seen by his father and brother. When he met his mother's eyes again, they seemed to him altered, dim and haggard. "'Good evening,' said Madame Rosemilly. "'I have come to ask you for a cup of tea.' But while they were bustling about her and asking after her health, Pierre made off, the door having been left open. When his absence was perceived, they were all surprised. Jean, annoyed for the young widow, who, he thought, would be hurt, muttered, "'What a bear!' Madame Roland replied, "'You must not be vexed with him. He is not very well today, and tired with his excursion in Trouville.' "'Never mind,' said Roland. "'That is no reason for taking himself off like a savage.' Madame Rosemilly tried to smooth matters by saying, "'Not at all, not at all. He has gone away in the English fashion. People always disappear in that way in fashionable circles if they want to leave early.' oh in fashionable circles i dare say replied jean but a man does not treat his family a l'anglaise and my brother has done nothing else for some time past End of chapter five